Those of you who know me and know a bit about my story know that uh, when I was a boy growing up, my dad was a conservative Baptist pastor. And, uh, and so I've got to say the, the rules in our church and uh, in our home were very strict when it came to how we observed uh, the Sabbath day, when it came to how we lived on Sundays and, and what we were able to do and what we were not able to do. Of course, we had uh, church and uh, Sunday school on Sunday morning, and we went to church for a Sunday evening service as well. But, but after church, uh, in between those two times uh, on Sundays, we weren't allowed to watch TV. We weren't allowed to go outside and play. Instead, uh, we had to go to our room where we could either read or we could take a nap. Now, now as I've come to realize in my study of what the Bible teaches about how we celebrate Sabbath, uh, how we celebrate what we call today the Lord's Day, Sunday. Uh, some of the rules uh, that were going on in our home and in the church in which uh, I grew up in had more to do with the culture of the church I was growing up with in than, than they did uh, about what the Bible taught us in how we are to live on the Lord's Day. And to be truthful with you, I have to say, I began to see that reality early on. I remember as a nine-year-old boy, wanting very much to watch football games on Sunday afternoon in the fall. And, uh, and I will never forget that day that, that our family was hosting a missionary from Africa. He was speaking at our church that weekend, and he was staying in our home. And, and when the Sunday dinner was over, he, he said to my dad that he thought he'd take the afternoon and watch some football game that was on TV. <laughs> now, I know I shouldn't have done this, but... I remember standing up and cheering right there at the dining room table because <laughs> I knew I was going to get to watch a game that day with him. And I knew that after that, my dad was going to have a hard time saying that I couldn't watch football games on Sunday afternoon because after all, if the missionary from Africa thinks it's okay and there's nothing wrong with it, how could it be so wrong? You know? A couple of years later, something else changed about Sundays in our family, and that was when my oldest sister brought home her fiance. And after church, he brought out the baseball gloves and he said to me, hey, let's go outside and play catch. <laughs> you know, I, 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 since then, I've come to realize that there are a number of ways that we worship God. There are a number of ways we understand the Bible when it comes to living the Christian life where the Bible is not, as we say in our language today, black and white about every issue. For example, when it comes to the way we worship, some people say that traditional worship with hymns is the way that God is most glorified, and, and others say that uh, a more modern worship with a praise band is the way to worship God. Some people say that infants should be baptized. Others say that believers should be baptized. Some people say that the gift of speaking in tongues is something that's no longer valid for today, is that gift ended when the last of the disciples of Jesus died, while, while others say the gift certainly is for today. And, and what we see going on in the life of the Christian church around the world is that various groups of Christians interpret the Bible differently when it comes to issues like these and, and, and other issues where the Bible is not totally clear about those issues. But you know, the sad thing to me is not that we have different interpretations in those areas where God's word is not clear, but rather all too often today in the life of the church around the world, Christians will either accept each other or judge each other 
based on whether or not brothers and sisters in Christ are fulfilling a predetermined set of behavioral expectations. And what's interesting is that most of those behavioral expectations are not from a biblical list, but rather, like in the church I was growing up in, a list from cultural expectations. And unfortunately, all too often, Christians will say to one another today, hey, if you don't cross your T and dot your I the way I do, I won't have anything to do with you and we can't be part of the same church family. Well, you know what's going on today really isn't anything new in the life of the church. I mean, early in the book of Acts, we see the first people who became followers of Christ were Jewish people and they were people of Jewish faith and and then it wasn't long before Gentiles started becoming Christians. And, and suddenly there was this huge division that arose in the life of the church about whether Christians should be circumcised according to Jewish law if they were going to truly follow Jesus. And, and, and the early church almost came apart at that issue. And, and ultimately they dealt with it by saying that, hey, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. And so no longer is circumcision necessary uh, to be a Christian. But they said those who feel that that's important for their faith should do it. And those who feel that it's not important to their faith are not bound to practice it. Well, then time goes on. And a little later on in Romans 14, uh, we see so, the same thing happening with, with some other issues. And, and, and as the Apostle Paul addresses those issues, he says to the people, hey, accept one another rather than judging each other. And, and build one another up instead of tearing each other down. And so this morning, as we continue our summer message series on, on some of the 58 one another commands that are in the New Testament part of the Bible, let's look at these two commands that Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 14, the commands to accept one another and build up one another. If you have your Bible with you, open again to Romans 14 and you can follow along in the Bibles that are there in front of you in the seats, or you can follow along on your version app if you're using that, uh, or on the screen behind me as we'll put the scriptures here as well. But in verse 1 of Romans chapter 14, the Apostle Paul says this to the early church. Accept the one whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. What's he saying here? He's saying, well, in the Christian life, there are issues that are disputable. There, there are theological and lifestyle issues where, where the word of God is not totally clear. It's not always in black and white. And these are issues that are not essential to the salvation of a person. And they're issues where the scripture does not clearly set or define a, a behavioral expectations. And Paul is having to address the early church about these things because Christians are basing their acceptance of one another and they're judging one another on whether or not their brothers and their sisters in Christ are, are fulfilling these predetermined sets of behavioral expectations. Again, most of which aren't from a biblical list. And look at what Paul says in verses 2 through 8. One person's faith allows them to eat anything. But another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge? Uh, we've got something going on here with this. 
um, screen. Can we go to uh, verses 2 through 8? We'll have to reset that. Kind of love technology, huh? When it works. Anyway, we'll look along in the scriptures. Here we go. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. And so whether we live or die, we belong to God. What's this talking about here? Well, there are a couple issues going on that Paul is addressing. And the first one is this issue of eating meat offers to idols. What does that mean? Well, well, understand that in, in that day, people didn't go down to Dillon's or Smoky River Meats or over to Sam's Club to buy their meat. The, in a lot of the communities back in, in biblical, in the early days of the early church, uh, the meat market was located out behind the pagan temple. And what people would do is they would bring their animals for sacrifice at the pagan temple. They would sacrifice them to uh, pagan gods. And, and then the animal would be butchered and carved up into the meat. And the meat would be sold out in the back of the market. That was the local meat market in many communities of that day. And because of that, there were Christians in the early church who were saying, hey, you can't eat meat offered to idols. And there were others going, hey, it's no big deal to eat meat offered to idols. And, and Paul says, those who think that meeting, uh, eating meat offered to idols was a sin are, are looking down in judgment uh, on those who, who do. And, and while those who thought it was okay because they said, hey, the idol isn't real anyway, uh, they're not much concerned about the feelings of those who, who see this practice as sin. And so that's one of the issues going on that Paul talks about. There's a second issue that was going on there, and it's the issue of religious holy days. And uh, some in the church are celebrating special holy days and, and saying, hey, we need to do this in order to draw closer to God in our faith. And others uh, are saying, hey, uh, it really doesn't matter. Every day is special to the Lord. Every day is sacred to God. And we don't need to celebrate these special days in order to be drawn closer to God. Kind of like the differences today between liturgical and non-liturgical churches where, where some people are saying these things, these celebrations draw us closer to God. Others go, hey, it doesn't matter. Every day is sacred. And again, it, it, Paul is saying to these folks, hey, some of you are looking down in judgment on each other because you don't celebrate these days. And others of you who don't celebrate these days are, are not concerned about the feelings of those who see these days as vital to their faith. And so what does he say? How does he address it? Look at verses 9 through 12. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. And so then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. What God's word is saying here to us today through the Apostle Paul is, is, is Paul is saying, hey, realize that Jesus is Lord of all. 
And as a result, every believer, every follower of Christ is going to one day stand before uh, what, what the scripture calls the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. And, and we are all going to give an account of our lives and how we've lived and whether as believers we have lived our life for the glory of God. And so as a result of that, Paul's saying, hey, God is the ultimate judge. Leave that kind of judgment of others and their works in his hands. Leave it to God. That's what he says in verses 13 through 18 when he says this. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, he says, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know to be good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. What this is saying is that there are matters in the Christian life that are not essential doctrines of the Christian faith and that are not clear and definitive teaching on worship issues or doctrinal issues or, or behavioral lifestyle issues. And, and what Paul is saying here is that if someone feels it's wrong, they shouldn't do it. It's against their conscience. And, and if they do something like that that's against their conscience, he says, it's a sin because they're not acting out of faith. But he says, there are issues where people know the Bible is not clear about the issue. And, and he says, in that case, then there is Christian freedom when it comes to that issue. And that person has liberty in that. However, he says, hey, those of you who feel the issue is wrong and don't do it, don't, don't judge your brother or sister in Christ who have freedom and liberty in Christ to do that thing. And he says to those of you who are exercising that freedom in Christ and that Christian liberty, be careful not to flaunt that behavior in front of someone else. In other words, if you know someone doesn't eat meat offered to idols, don't go carving up a big steak in front of them, all right? You just don't do it. Instead, he's saying, let there be a spirit of love between them as they accept one another. Accept one another, he says, instead of judging each other. Build each other up instead of tearing each other down. And then he goes on to say something else to those who live in that Christian freedom to do those things that the Bible is not clear about. And he says, hey, also, you need to be careful then. You need to be careful not to lead a brother or a sister in Christ astray by encouraging them by your behavior to do something that they think is wrong. In other words, what he's saying is if someone thinks something is wrong, don't, don't, don't try to convince them to do it. Because if they do, then for them it is sin and we are leading them astray. You see, the whole deal here that Paul is talking about in Romans 14 is that, yes, the Bible says there is Christian freedom. Christian liberty is wonderful. But Christian love is even better. Christian love is even greater. And look at what he says about this in verses 19 through 23. 
Let us, therefore, he says, make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. And that word, those words mutual edification in the original language that Paul is writing in literally means build up one another. So he's saying, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to what builds up one another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep them between yourself. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. Having heard what Paul is saying to the people in his day, I got to say there are probably a number of ways that we could apply this this morning. But we don't have time other than to maybe apply it a couple of different ways. And, and, And so let's talk this morning about a couple of issues where there is oftentimes division amongst Christians in the, in the church of Jesus Christ and, and where Christians are, are judging one another and where some are, are flaunting behaviors in front of others that, that offends them. And, and since Paul is talking here in this text about matters of eating and drinking or about matters of worship, let's, let's look at this and the application of this for our life in those two areas. But before we do, I I just want to say a word here and and say, let's be clear again that as we apply these kinds of principles to our Christian life, we not be, let's not be applying them to areas where the scripture is truly, is, is, is clear about things. You and I live in a culture today where so much uh, behavior goes on that it's acceptable now because the culture says it's okay. And, uh, and, and I want to say that's not what's meant by Paul here. We're talking about things this morning that are, as Paul says, disputable matters where the scripture is not clear. But as we think uh, about the first application we could talk about in terms of what Paul says about matters of eating and drinking, I I want us to think about today uh, the issue of alcohol and drinking because there are people in the body of Christ all around the world, there are people even in this church who would say that drinking alcohol is a sin, shouldn't do it. And there are others in this church that would say, hey, there's Christian freedom in this. It's a gift that God's given us, and it's to be used wisely and not abused. And those who believe that would say, yes, it's a sin to drink. For instance, guys in the high school group, if you're underage, as it's against the law, and we're to obey the laws of our government other than when they conflict with the word of God. And folks that believe that would say, yes, it's a sin to get drunk. It's a sin to ruin our witness by drinking or or be a stumbling block to someone else who is weaker in their faith or who maybe struggles with that issue and shouldn't be drinking. And we, we drink around them. Don't do that, Paul says. These things are wrong. But there is Christian freedom according to what some people believe the scripture is teaching. And so we have these two views in the body of Christ. And what does Paul say about that? Paul is saying, well, for those of you who believe it's wrong to drink, you better not drink. It's against your conscience. It would be a sin for you to do so. But for those of you who believe that it is okay to do so in moderation, exercise your freedom in Christ. But do so according to biblical principles and be careful that you are not offending your brother and sister in Christ who differs with you. In other words, what he's saying here is let love rule the day. 
And what's really a good definition of love? It's, it's looking out for the well-being of the other person. And so that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, hey, let's look out for one another. Let's accept one another. Let's look to build each other up and not ruin our witness or be a stumbling block to others. Well, then he goes on to talk about that second issue, that issue of worship. And we could talk about that today, especially in regard to musical styles. Uh, you know, I, I got to say to you that I, I, I've come to think and, and believe that that the style of worship music that most people prefer in worship tends to be the style of worship music that was in vogue at the time when that person was uh, undergoing their greatest initial spiritual formation. And that's why that kind of worship music is part of their heart language. And so no wonder they're passionate about it. And, and that's why there is division in the life of the church over issues of worship. Uh, because there are some people who are saying, hey, we need to worship with the ancient forms of worship. And others who are saying, no, let's worship with the modern forms of worship. Or, or let's worship according to contemporary style. And others are saying, let's worship according to a traditional style. I got to tell you that I don't think really the Bible addresses musical styles other than it tells us to worship with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, which I think kind of incorporates it all. <laughs> but, but what the Bible does really teach us about worship is that it's really not about us. Worship is not really about a style of music or worship. It's really about glorifying God. It is about God. And so the Bible really tells us that God is glorified with any form of worship as long as it is worship that is done from the heart. Look at John 4 with me for a few moments. Uh, John 4 uh, verses 19 and following where Jesus has this conversation with a woman at the well in Samaria and they begin talking about worshiping God and she says this, sir, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshiped? And Jesus replied, Believe me, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father here or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know so little about the one you worship while we Jews know all about him. For salvation comes through the Jews. And then he says this, but the time is coming and is already here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for anyone who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, and so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. What is Jesus saying to this woman? Well, basically, if he was here today, he would say to us, hey, the place where we worship, the form of worship that we like, our style of worship that we prefer isn't really what truly matters to God. Rather, what matters to God is whether our worship is coming from our hearts that are alive in the Spirit of Christ and in tune with Him. And whether we are worshiping Him in the Spirit and in truth. Commenting on this uh, some time ago, Gary Berg, who is a professor of New Testament at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois, wrote this. He said, in countless churches today, congregations struggle with the nature of worship and the perceived forms that are traditional and, quote, holy, unquote. In other words, 
which form of, of worship is honoring and pleasing to God. He writes, I, I have witnessed this in two congregations. Younger people want something contemporary, while older folks who don't realize that their liturgies only began in the last 60 to 70 years defend traditional forms. In spirit and in truth ought to be an exhortation aimed at both parties. Neither drums and contemporary songs sung in a modern way or 18th century hymns guarantee genuine worship that engages the spirit of God. Friends, what he's saying is that we've got to be careful that we do not allow our forms of worship to become more important to us than worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Because when that happens, when you and I get caught up into styles of worship, or the form of worship becomes what we're worshiping rather than worshiping the God who that form of worship is supposed to be pointing us to and leading us to. If you have your message notes this morning, you'll see I've put a couple of passages of Scripture in there. and uh, We don't have time to look at those today, but I encourage you to go home and read those two passages of Scripture. The first one from Numbers chapter 21. It's a, a story of God's people, the ancient people of Israel, who after coming out of Egypt are out in the desert wandering around. And they're getting frustrated with God. They're getting frustrated with Moses and they begin to grumble and they begin to complain. And what God does to punish them and to turn their hearts back to him is he disciplines them. And, and the Bible says he sends poisonous snakes into the midst of the camp. And many of the people are bitten by the poisonous snakes and some of them die. And, and realizing what they've done and how they have grieved God, the people repent and they cry out to God for deliverance. And God tells Moses, he says, Moses, make a bronze replica of that snake, of one of those poisonous snakes. Put it up on a pole and when the people look at the pole in trust and in faith in me and repent, I, I, will, I will forgive them and deliver them. Now, that's a wonderful image, isn't it, of the cross? Of Jesus who comes and takes on the form of human beings and, and goes to the cross and is lifted up so that when we look at him in faith and in trust, we're forgiven and we receive grace. But, but what ultimately ended up happening was the people of Israel took that snake with them as a reminder of, of what God had done in his deliverance. And you know, they carried that snake with them for the rest of the 40 years that they were wandering around in the desert. And, you know, for the next 500 years, someone, someplace had that snake because when Solomon built his temple, they put that bronze snake up in the temple and it was there to point the people as a reminder to them of God and his mercy and his grace upon them. But then comes along Hezekiah. And by Hezekiah's day, in 2 Kings 18, we see that Hezekiah goes into the temple and he breaks the snake apart into a bunch of pieces. And why did he do that? Because you see, this snake that was there to remind the people that they were supposed to be worshiping God had become what the people began to worship instead of God. And you know, it didn't just happen in the life of the people of God in the Old Testament. It happened in the early church too. I mean, after Jesus goes back to heaven, the early church is worshiping on the Sabbath day, the traditional day of worship for the Jews. And ultimately, some folks come along and the Gentiles come into the life of the church and people begin to say, hey, the Lord was raised on the first day of the week. Let's worship God on, on a Sunday. That would be more appropriate. And, and folks were divided on that issue to such a degree that the early church almost came apart at the seams over that issue. 
And then they had to deal with that. And then they had to deal with the issues that we've talked about here in Romans 14 that we saw just a few moments ago. And in the midst of it all, Paul is saying, hey, if you believe one thing on these disputable issues, don't judge someone because they believe something different. And if you believe different from the one that believes something else, don't flaunt it in front of them. Don't offend them. Don't do that. But you know, it's interesting. The controversy of worship didn't go away with the early church. You know, we know from studying the history of the church that they initially sang in Psalms to Hebrew meter. And eventually someone came along and said, you know, Hebrew meter is okay, but, but how about we sing in Greek meter? Yeah. And there were some people who said, God's not into Greek meter, only Hebrew meter. And other people were saying, no, God's into Greek meter too. I mean, you know, and, and, and the argument continued. And then along comes the fourth century. And by then the church is pretty much singing in Greek meter. And someone comes along and says, you know, Greek meter's okay, but how about we do some Roman songs? That's what people like today. That's the music of the culture. And again, the argument occurs and the division happens. You realize it happened as well in the 11th century when, get this, of all things, harmony was added to music. Church got divided over that. And then in the 16th century, the Reformation leads to all kinds of changes in the Mass. And, and in Martin Luther's day, he got criticism because... When he penned the words of that great hymn of the faith, a mighty fortress is our God, that hymn based on Psalm 46. You know what he penned the words to? A German bar song. <laughs> he did. That's a tune, is a German bar song. And, and Johann Sebastian Bach was one of the most criticized musicians in his day because he was bringing in new forms of music. And John and Charles Wesley wrote some of those great hymns that we love to sing today were criticized because most of the tunes of most of those hymns are to British bar songs. The music of the day, the music of the culture. And the point of all of this and the point of what Paul is saying is that God loves variety. And I am so thankful that I get to serve in a church where people love a variety of worship forms and musical styles and we get to celebrate. I, I gotta tell you, I thrill to traditional music and I thrill to praise and worship music of a contemporary style. But the point of all of this is, is that God is saying don't worship the form of worship. Worship Him. And when there's disagreements with one another, don't be judging each other. But accept one another and build one another up. We've got all kinds of diversity here, don't we, in our church of people who in regard to worship and, and, and other ways too. I mean, there are some people that say, hey, let's worship for 40 minutes and have a 20-minute message. And others who say, let's worship for 20 minutes and have a 40-minute message. And, and you know, there are some people who are a bit more cerebral in the way they approach life and others who are a bit more uh, feeling-oriented and, and a bit more expressive. And that's okay. That's okay. All of us need to be stretched. And the word of God is saying to you and to me today as we live life together in the church of Jesus Christ, let's accept one another and let's build one another up. Don't judge. Don't tear each other down. After writing these words in Romans chapter 14, Paul goes on in chapter 15, verses 5 through 7 to write this. And I want to close with these words. He writes, may God, who gives this patience and encouragement, help you 
live in complete harmony with each other, each with the attitude of Christ Jesus toward the other, then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So accept each other just as Christ has accepted you. And God will be glorified. What's he saying? What he's saying is that you and I live this out in our life and we accept one another and we build one another up in these areas of disputable issues. We can then live out the first part of that great commandment and we can together glorify God by going deeper in Christ and loving the Lord our God with all of our heart and our soul and our minds, our bodies, our strength. And God will be glorified. But then out of the overflow of that, as God is glorified, we'll go deeper in mission, further in mission. As we'll live out the second part of that great commandment, to love our neighbor as ourselves, And we will live out the great commission, which is really about staying focused on mission. You see, ultimately, it's about the mission that God wants us to do and that Satan wants to prevent. And Paul is saying to you and to me today in the church of Jesus Christ throughout all ages, that when we live in the way that he is outlining here in the scripture and in these one another commands to accept one another and build one another up, God is glorified and the church will stay on mission and the world will know we're Christians by our love.